lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for joining us today. We've got a really educating session today. I've got Dr. Tamara Rosier, and she's been a college administrator, a professor, a leadership consultant, a high school teacher, a national public speaker, and an ADHD coach. Through those adventures, she's developed a valuable insight into ADHD and how it affects one's life. As founder of the ADHD Center of West Michigan, she leads a team of coaches, therapists, speech pathologists to help individuals, parents, and families develop an understanding and learn effective skills to live with ADHD effectively. Her book, Your Brain's Not Broken, provides strategies for navigating the powerful emotional aspect of ADHD. Tamara, thanks so much for being with me today. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. You know, and I we talked a little bit earlier, and I and I told you I love the name of your book. It just it, it resonates with my heart because when I have two boys that are fully grown now, but when they were in second grade, one got hit by a car. We went to the emergency room. He had a concussion, but everything was fine until he got to fifth grade. And in fifth grade, he literally told me his brain was broke. It just did not work anymore. So that title means something's very special to me. And I think you have a special story around that title, too. Well, it's interesting. Uh, when we were trying to title the book, uh, I, would, I kept trying to figure out, you know, what should we call this? And finally, uh, someone in my family said, you know what you say a lot? You tell your clients that their brain's not broken. And I was actually surprised uh, that I said that. I, you know, I don't listen to myself talk most of the time. And I'm like, really, do I say that? And he said, yeah, not only do you say it, like you say it a lot to people and you try to encourage people to believe that. And so that's how we got the title of the book. Um, And I do, I really believe the whole book was written to people. I, I really want people with ADHD to know your brain's not broken, but you're definitely processing differently. Well, and, and, you know, just because your brain works differently, so does the autistic brain. The autistic brain really processes differently. And and so just because we process things differently doesn't mean that it doesn't work. But you know, and I know, because we've both worked with those ADHD brains, they do work differently. They, they really do. And when you think of, and do you have any ADHD yourself? <laughs> Oh, yes. And I write about it in the book. Uh, In fact, uh, I was so honest about my ADHD in the book that a couple weeks before it was coming out, I started to panic. And I I was just like, you know what? Mistakes have been made. I've said too much. (laughs) And you know all the Brene Brown vulnerability stuff? Well, I'm like, no, no, I I reject any vulnerability. Um, but it was too late, of course. The book was in print, and I just had to learn to live with my vulnerability at that point. But yes, I, I definitely have ADHD. Um, and remember, ADHD is highly hereditary. And so um, if you are a parent with ADHD, you have a child, uh, probably have a child with ADHD. 
So did you grow up in a, a ADHD household? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, both parents had ADHD, both undiagnosed. And unfortunately, and I think my story might be um, similar to others out there. Um, the part of ADHD that isn't talked about a lot is emotional, the lack of emotional regulation um, in those who have ADHD. So my childhood was really just a drunken goat rodeo. And you know, just really not stable, um, very emotional, you know, just kind of walking on eggshells. And that's how ADHD really affected my life. Wow. So when did you realize that you had, you were shared in the wealth? Everybody had it. Did you realize that when you were young or did it take you a while? So uh, I started out my career as a high school teacher. And so it was an undergrad. I was reading, remember, uh, this is back in the early 90s. I was reading about this thing called ADD. That's what it was called back then. And I remember calling my dad saying, Dad, I'm reading about this thing. And it sounds like I have it. And, you know, it sounds like all of us. And he reassured me that ADD was just a made-up thing. And uh, that's not... Everyone thinks like the way the way we think, and really, I should just ignore that part of the textbook. And hmm. then I started teaching high school, and I found I was really good at teaching one particular part of of the segment, and that that was ADHD students. And then slowly, my twenty year old brain started to put two and two together. Like maybe you're teaching these people so well because you think like they do. And then from there on, um, I started to work on the fact that I had ADHD. Well, you know what? Nobody knows it better than those that have experienced it. And I mean, I, I know that for myself as well. A lot of my learning when you've when you can put yourself and you can think like they think or feel like they think they feel it just mm -hmm. it's an automatic connection. It really is. Um, you know, this is a weird thing with ADHD people, but, um, and I write, I write about this in the introduction of my book, I can be anywhere and it's like I have an ADHD magnet in me and I'll find the two people out of a thousand who have ADHD. And because I find them fascinating, I get how they think. And I've been in, um, in sessions with parents and their children and the non-ADHD person will look like, what's happening right now? Because all the up, and we start talking at a certain pace and finishing each other's sentences. It, it's just a, it's a funny thing that happens when you're with your ADHD tribe. It's a sisterhood. <laughs> it kind of is. Yep. Well, you know, there's been much talk about ADHD, and, and I, I can remember when it was ADD. And that's what it went by. And now I believe it's back to being, or it's back to being ADD. Is am I correct? Uh, no, uh, it's ADHD, and it's known. So the, first of all, the DSM is woefully behind on research right now, and I think in the next couple of years you'll see uh, the DSM, you know, the the manual that we use to diagnose 
uh, EDHD, kind of catch up with the research. Um, but it is currently known as ADHD. And what happens is people will come to me and say, well, I don't have the hyperactivity. Right. And the answer to that is, well, yes, you do. It's just internal hyperactivity. It's not the external jiggling your knee or wanting to be busy all the time, but you do have um, cognitive hyperactivity. So the H is always there. We just have to figure out where the H shows up. Okay, well, that's, you know, I've heard both a lot of, I've read a lot on how the H is, you know, I think you're right. The H is always there. It just, people think, well, you know, I don't have any trouble sitting still. I don't squirm. I don't fidget. I don't have any of that. And because I've I've heard that many times, but it's, it it doesn't matter whether you have it on the inside or the out. If it's there, it's there. So that's called... That's called inattentive ADHD. So there's three kinds. There's hyperactive ADHD, inattentive ADHD, and then combination ADHD. And and the women who have inattentive ADHD who also have high IQs, those are the women who are very difficult to diagnose. And so if you if you have a listener out there who is a female who's thinking well, I'm smart. I did okay in school, but that's just because I would stress myself out with anxiety, but I don't fidget. I'm not a naughty boy. Maybe, maybe they should take a look at ADHD. Have you found that that provides answers for people, you know, understanding why they behave the way they do, why they react the way they do? Because a lot of people that come to the Brain Performance Center, that's really they're that's really what they're looking for. And they don't, it's not that they want a diagnosis, but they just want to understand, is there a reason that I that I do the things I do? Have you experienced that? Oh, yes. I mean, I, you know. There, two things tend to happen. Um, a lot of times women uh, come into the ADHD center and they get diagnosed late in life. So they're going through menopause and they were losing their darn mind. And then the doctor's like, well, you actually have a whole history of ADHD. And it's all of a sudden, everything kind of fits into perspective. They're like, oh my goodness, this is making my life make more sense. I can see the pattern. The sad thing is a lot of times um, in this, I have men who've been later diagnosed too, but there's also the sadness of, wow, what, what could I have done if someone had understood if my ADHD was appropriate, appropriately treated, or if I just wasn't such a jerk to myself about my ADHD symptoms, um, you know, what could I have done in life? And so, you know, there's this wave of relief but also this grief cycle that starts. So what do you tell those people? I mean, when, I mean you can sense it because you've experienced it probably yourself, but, but what do you tell people? How do you help them grieve through it? Yeah, well, we, you know, a lot of coaching is just helping people name what they're experiencing and helping people find a way out of it. And so... A lot of times, uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because the emotional regulation part of ADHD is so underrepresented in uh, literature that that a lot of people don't understand. Like, oh, is this why I lose my temper? 
when I, you know, open my car door and sit in a hot, hot car in the middle of July, like I get very impatient and um, yeah, this is why. And so helping them kind of put all the pieces together really does help them feel better about moving forward. But we do still have to deal with a path of what could I have been? So I, 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 I'm honest with them and I, I kind of reframe it and say, think about yourself and how hard you had to work just to pretend you were normal. I think that past version of you deserves a medal because it was harder and you had to, you had to kind of fool yourself and fool others just to get to places on time and just to do the planning that you had to do to raise the kids. So really the past version of you is a hero, but now we can support the future version of you better so that she just doesn't have to work as hard. Well, you know, you bring up an excellent point, and that is time management. That is something that every, well, maybe not every, but pretty close to every ADHD client I've had, in some way, time management is a problem, whether, you know, getting up to their appointments on time, um, finishing on time, just even something as simple as, well, because I've said, well, just watch the clock. When the clock says 1.30, <laughs> you know, you have to leave for your two o'clock appointment. And I just get this, you know, deer in the headlights stare. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about I, time I management. I laugh because, yeah, I laugh because that's not even a thing. Um, that's So ADHD people have a very weird relationship with time. And it's because we go through feeling time. Other people go through reading a clock. We go through feeling it. And so we feel time. And so boring things take longer. Fun things take shorter. And we, almost to a T, most of us will forget to add travel time. And by the way, I can hear the listener going, well, I have ADHD and I'm always on time. To which I will tell them, busted, you use anxiety to get on time. Because what we do is we are feeling everything. And so those people who are hyper conscientious say, wow, it is very important that I'm on time and I am going to be a grown up about this. And so what they do is they work up anxiety because that's kind of part of the emotional regulation uh, that accompanies ADHD. And they go, I'm going to be on time, come hell or high water. And they can touch all of this energy to be on time. See, neurotypical folks, people who don't have ADHD, they just leave at 1.30. But everyone else, it's like we need an emotional reason. Like we're all like method actors going, what's my motivation here? And that's really the ADHD life. Well, and it is a different life because, you know, I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, not that it's so simple because, but for me, time management, I just watch the clock and I mean, maybe I'll leave myself a little sticky pad so that I stay in line with it, but it's something that just comes natural. And it's something that not only is a problem for them, but I've seen what it does to the relationships that they have with other people. Oh yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Well, before we go there, I just want to say the reason why your brain just looks at a clock and you're like, come on, this is easy. 
just look at a clock. It's because you have a prefrontal cortex that tells you, hey, look at the clock and do what the clock says. Those of us with ADHD, um, our prefrontal cortex doesn't perform uh, evenly. And so often, so we, we're missing that just do it button. And there's a whole chapter in my book about the easy things are hard for us. And usually when neurotypicals are like, well, this is, this is easy. Just do it this way. We're like, oh, my goodness, I think you're splitting an atom here. What are you doing? And a quick example about that is I just spent the summer uh, with my delightful daughter, the only one who doesn't have ADHD. And I kept watching her. Uh, she was my administrative assistant this summer. She was fantastic. And let's be clear, she outperformed me on a lot of administrative tasks. She could work more quickly and efficiently, and she uses different logic. And there are times I'm looking at this 20-year-old thinking, wow, what she just did is the equivalent of sorcery in my head. It was pure, magical. I couldn't figure out how she got there, but it was so apparent to her. And the so answer is, easy. She has a prefrontal cortex telling her to. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that prefrontal cortex is involved in everything that we do. And if you don't, your brain's not fully developed until mid to late 20s. And if you never get it developed, then it's right. it's already like you're kind of starting, not with cognitive decline, but you're already starting a little bit behind the ball. A hundred percent. So that prefrontal cortex tells us what to do, how to do it. And when to do it. And so the adults I work with um, at the ADHD center, they're missing that information. What, how, and when. So they turn to emotional impulses to know what, how, and when. And sometimes those are correct. And a lot of times they're wrong. Here's a metaphor that I used just this week with a client. Uh, he was describing something. And I said, you know what? It sounds like your house is on fire. And you went to go <laughs> get the garden hose. But you notice that your tomato plant is dry, and so you stop to water the tomato plant. And you have a really good reason, because you like tomatoes, and you don't want this plant to die. But you're missing the house fire, aren't you? And he's just like, oh. And so the rest of the, the, rest of the time, we're kind of trying to talk about the house fire. How do we get out? How do we put out the house fire? Even though the tomato plant is worth our attention, it's not bigger than the house fire. And that's actually what he was doing in his business. And that's what most of my ADHD clients do. Well, it sounds like you know them well. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. Which, uh, I love Which job. is a blessing. Did we all, pardon? That's a blessing that you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you talked a lot about the, the emotions and what I have found, I work with a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety is when you've got emotional dysregulation, it just zaps your motivation, totally destroys any motivation you have. How do you motivate someone with ADHD? Yeah. So um, this, this is fascinating because first of all, no one can motivate another person, right? So we have to work with ADHD individuals. So all the parents out there listening, how do I motivate 
my son, who's in his basement playing video games all the time, you can't motivate him. But if he works with an ADHD professional, he can figure out how to motivate himself. And I'll tell you, I spend most of my sessions with clients, they come with a problem of how do I motivate myself to do this? And well, you know, usually, go ahead. That would be a great, uh, just a great takeaway for all of our listeners. For those that have the ADHD brain, how do you help them motivate themselves? Yes. And remember, it's not that easy, right? Because there's um, false beliefs um, that feed the emotions and there's emotional dysregulation. Uh, So we have to figure out um, a question I asked one of my clients the other day. His mom was after him to eat in a healthy way. And he wasn't, he actually wasn't eating much at all. He'll just not eat. And um, he's about 18 years old. And I said, so your mom's been talking to you. You know, she raised you to eat healthy. Why do you think you haven't done it yet? Like, you know, all the information. What is it that you're not, like, why do you think you're not doing it? And that question stopped him in his tracks. He's like, I do. It's not a it's not a problem with not enough information. I'm convinced I need to eat right. Why aren't I? And so that was kind of a breakthrough moment for him to start to figure out how to hack his own motivation. Hmm. And all I can say is it's not um so in my book I talk about some things, but I really try to give framework to think about this. Because everyone has their own different recipe for motivation. And that has to do with our life experiences, personality, uh, because all those affect how our ADHD is expressed. Well, and motivation means something different to everybody, too. I mean, right. when when I'm motivated, I expect this this type of behavior. When somebody else is motivated, they expect something totally different. Exactly. So, uh, so task initiation is kind of a subcategory under motivation, and task initiation is really um, a sticky widget here because I, if there's someone, it's like our couches have this built-in gravity pull, and and we're on the couch and we're like, I know I should get up and do this, but wow, this couch has such a gravitational pull. How do we break this gravitational force? and actually push yourself to do it. And that's called, a ta- that's called task initiation. And so task initiation is often the clients have the right belief, they know it, they know what they're, they want to do, but they're just missing that just do it button. And so that is a very tricky thing to work with. Uh, fortunately, medication actually helps with that quite a bit. Um, but also ADHD coaching uh, helps them kind of clear up the confusion. So breaking the gravitational force of, a, of wherever we're at, where we're like, ah, I know I have to do this. I just don't feel like moving. Um, that is also really challenging. And I actually work with some adolescents and their parents just lose their minds over this because they're like, we had a plan. And the kid's like, yeah, I just didn't feel like doing it. And oh, when you and have I, ADHD, that's a huge problem. 
but you know, as a parent, I know what that feels like. I raised two boys when I hear, you know, I just didn't feel like doing it. You just hmm, have to yeah. really take some deep breaths, focus on your oh. breath before, before, <laughs> I mean, I've caught myself just wanting to, wah, you know, and, and I learned the hard way that certainly doesn't do any, any good for anybody. You know, we've got about three minutes, three and a half minutes before we go to break. So let's kind of Think about what our ending message on the ADHD is with the motivation or, or motivation, getting things done. Just just do it button. Yeah. So I, I'd love for your listeners to understand that ADHD and, and there's research backing this up and it's clear research. Uh, one of the major symptoms of ADHD is emotional regulation or the lack thereof. And so whenever you, you or someone else has emotional regulation, because they're missing that just do it button, it means that they're really trying to find emotional ways of doing things. And after the break, I can probably give you an example if, if you're interested in that. Oh, I think that, you know, I think that would be great because and we all identify with, with an example and that when you get a good example, you can take that and you can apply that to your life. I mean, ADHD, I have seen be not only difficult for the person that, that is struggling with it, but for the family, particularly relationships, yeah. uh, particularly if there's only <laughs> one person in a family that has it. Yeah. And, they, you know, the spouse just does not understand. They feel totally disrespected. They feel like they're right. not being, they're not being heard. They're being ignored. Um, they're not being loved the way they should. And when it's something just as simple as they've got a dysregulated brain, and that's you try and tell tell that to a spouse. And, and the good news yeah. is, is that when I tell them they can regulate it, that certainly puts a smile on their face. But it is. It's. Yeah. I think it has a bigger impact on society then we really have even started to understand. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, it, and, you know, we still think we can make fun of ADHD. Like, oh, I had such an ADHD moment. And, you know, ADHD is not a laughing matter. Like those, those people I know with ADHD are usually frustrated with their brain. And they're frustrated that the hard thing, that the simple things are so hard for them. So... Yes, it, it totally affects relationships, um, and that's actually the topic of my next book, is well, relationships and ADHD. That's great. You know, so we're, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll, we'll give you some more examples that you can kind of compare yourself to and say, oh, I see that in my partner, I see that in my friends, or I see that in myself. And being able to identify those things. And we'll talk more when we come back from break and give you some overall guidance on how you can manage that ADHD. So stay with us and we'll be right back. We'll be back after these messages. just hate it when someone starts a sentence by saying, don't take this the wrong way, but 
According to Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal, we all do this on occasion. Some people refer to these phrases as tee-ups. That seems fitting. What do you do with a golf ball? You tee it up and then give it a giant wallop. Tee-ups like, to tell you the truth, supposedly soften the blow. But if you are taking the trouble to announce your honesty now, maybe you've been telling too many teradiddles, flummery, and fiblets. Being on the wrong side of a tee-up can be confusing for the listener. What are other words for confusion and frustration? Wouldn't dream in jargoggle. Maybe it would be best to try to remain pricknickety. That means totally above board and precise. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. It's words you never heard. Recently, during a football game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Rams, a spectator decided to run out onto the field. Game announcer Kevin Harlan treated the event like any other down and started calling the play-by-play as the Ken Speckled fan ran wildly up and down the field with security trying to tackle him. But people aren't the only ones causing high tantrabogus interruptions of professional sports matches. In Queensland, Australia, an adorable koala ran onto the field in the middle of a soccer match. But when a four-year-old took a wrong turn during a Legends charity football game and found himself on the field, without missing a beat, the players tossed the ball to the kid and let him run the length of the field for a score. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back, and right before we went to break, you know, an excellent point was made, and I want to revisit it because, you know, we we talk about how people will joke, oh, I'm having an ADHD moment, and, you know, we laugh about it, or a senior moment. But if you've ever seen somebody that does have ADHD or that is a senior and watch, you know, when you say and you joke about that, if you look at the look on their face, I've seen it in my center. It really does hurt their feelings. And I just thought, you know, I wanted to touch on that one more time. Thank so, you so much. Be- yeah. yeah, I'm interested in, in what your response to that is, Tamara. So <laughs> I even write about this, how I've my EDC has embarrassed me because I do make mistakes. Um, you know, just recently I made a mistake with a client, um, for some reason. And and to be clear, I have a PhD, I've written a book. I must not be this stupid. Right. And I, I, I remind myself because I feel really dumb when I make these errors, but here's what happened. For some reason, I thought her appointment appointment was at 7 PM and it was at 6 PM instead. It was on my calendar correctly. It was in the scheduling system correctly. My little bean head got confused, specifically prefrontal cortex. And I was deeply, deeply embarrassed. Now, I tried not to let it happen, right? I work really hard. But for some reason, I got confused. And all the systems I put in place failed for some reason. And what happens is, now, my client also has ADHD and has 
had things happen to her. Um, but, you know, you do that with someone who doesn't have ADHD and they think you're careless. They think it's not, you know, that you're not taking them seriously or they're irritated at whatever. And so those of us with ADHD, when we do make these really honest, albeit stupid mistakes, we start to internalize like, oh my gosh, I'm so dumb for doing that. And they're all too quickly. There's other people going, yep, you are. And, and that's, that's where the hurt and the shame starts to come from. Well, and nobody likes that. I mean, I, I don't like to be called out on my weaknesses. I don't like to kind of have that thrown in my face. I know I have them. Right. I mean, I know <laughs> I do. But but we don't need to announce it in an office when there's like seven or eight people walking right. around. So I, I think it's important that we stop and we reflect on those, you know, the, the takeaways that we get during the the radio show. So you were going to give us an example before we went, after we came back from break. Let's touch on that. Yes. All right. Um, here's, it, this example um, happened recently. And again, I was spending the summer, uh, you know, with my lovely administrative assistant daughter. Uh, it was after work and she had ridden with me that day. Um, and so we were riding home together and I said, hey, would you like to hit a drive through And she's like, yeah, I'm a little hungry. I didn't get the lunch I wanted. And it's great. So we're, we order through the drive through and we pull forward to wait for our food. And then I hear the squeak in the back left side of my car. I'm like, oh, that squeak just freaks me out. I need to get some, I need to get that looked at because I don't want my car to break down. And I went through this whole emotional flooding of, wow, it would really stink if my car broke down. So I'm like, you know what? I've been meaning to call uh, the auto place. I'm just going to call them now while I'm waiting um, in this uh, line. And again, my car was in parked, right? I'm not driving it. And I pick up the phone. I'm like, hi, this is Tamara. Can, um, my car's making a squeaky sound. When can I get it in? And they're like, great. When would you like to? And I, I'm like, oh, when would I like to? I'm like, well, hold on. Let me open up my calendar. I'm doing that. The food comes. And, and I wave at the gentleman giving me the food, saying, thank you very much. Hand it to my daughter. And I say, uh, it looks like Tuesday at 8 o'clock works for me to the auto person. And she, he said, all right, great. We'll see you then. Make the schedule. And we dr drive off, and my daughter eats her food. And my daughter is a, such a thoughtful, kind soul. And she's read my book. And she said, you know, Mom, I would have handled that all very differently. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And by the way, when I tell this story to my clients, my clients are like, cool, you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> and my, my daughter said, well, Mom, I would have put it on my list. And then I would have scheduled a time, but I would have already known what time I wanted to bring the car in. And so I wouldn't have done it waiting in a line. I would have done it like in a different setting. And as we were talking and deconstructing that little episode that we had just experienced, I realized the whole thing started because I got emotional over a squeaking sound in my car. And that is the key and that's what's different about ADHD folks. Uh, we, my daughter and I both agree the car needed to be looked at. 
And yet the impulse for me was emotional. And the impulse for my daughter would have been, had it been her car, um, oh, this is something I need to get looked at. I'm going to put it on my calendar to do. Does that make sense to you, that, Lee? It absolutely does. And that is such, that that's the type of conflict that, of course, it wasn't conflict between you and your daughter, but in different relationships, I see yeah. that that as a source of contact, conflict all the time with my clients. And, yeah. you know, you two handled it very well um, and we're very at ease with it. But it's it's a little bit different circumstance if that's the world you live in all the time and you really can't right. figure out why they do the things they do or why they don't do the things they should do. And it, it just puts right. a level of stress in there that's hard to it's well, hard to walk away from. It, it is. And yet, you know, my daughter grew up where most of us had ADHD. So she grew up observing us. And one time, one of my older kids tweeted, um, you know, I live with a professor, a pastor, and, you know, listed all the people in our house and said, and yet the most functioning is my 10-year-old sister. And it's because... <laughs> You know, she just was that little functional person who she had a prefrontal cortex. And so she was used to watching people go, wow, you guys can't really sequence things very well. And so when she was younger, I started saying, hey, some of us have a cognitive difference. It's not good or bad. It's a difference, which means we start at an emotional place. And sequencing is very difficult for us. And I remember one time when she was 12 and I was preparing for someone to come over and boy, I was a bit frenzied and I was trying to sweep. I, you know what I was doing? I was doing 10 things at once. And I hear her in a very calm voice saying, mom, I think you're having a sequence problem. Why don't we just make a list and follow that? And I just thought, oh, honey, I'm like, well, that was a very grown up word from you. And I accept that. Thank you very much for your feedback. And I did just that. And I appreciated her. Um, you know, a big uh, boundary I have is not to make my problems, my children's problems, but to hear feedback from them. And so I thanked her for the feedback, followed it, and said, this is an example of your cognitive difference. Now, in our family, she was the minority, and she grew up kind of with a lot of great for us. And I, I really appreciate that kid because of it. Well, it's interesting to me that how strong she, as w one out of a family, how strong she was and how, <laughs> and how old was she when she did that? She was a, a such a young kid. Sometimes, yeah. you know, um, our kids become the parents. Well, and that's where the boundary needs to happen. Because just because she has a functioning prefrontal cortex and I don't, yep. doesn't mean I need I should abdicate any of my parental uh, responsibility. Right. So I, I take feedback from her and go, you know what? That was really good neurotypical thinking. I appreciate you for that. But also I accept my responsibility as a grown person. And so when I'm working with parents and parent coaching, I, I really want them to hold that boundary of, yeah, you're right. You might have a kid that can outfunction you, but that doesn't mean you abdicate your parental supervision. It means 
yeah, uh, we might need help getting out of the house on time to get you to school on time. But but I don't want to put make my problem your problem. Absolutely. That's very well said, because we as parents, we have to own our world. We own our kids world, too, but we have to own our world and we have to keep control of that. So we've talked about emotions and how it impacts all aspects of our, our life. But do people get emotional regulation when they have ADHD? Is that like it, with neurofeedback and neuromodulation and all the different neuro stuff we do, we can teach that brain how to get into a regulated state. And oftentimes that impacts us on a cognitive and an emotional level. So what is your experience? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, so here's the metaphor that I use. Uh, Emotional regulation for many folks is like driving an automatic car. You don't, when you're driving a car, you don't think what gear you're in because your engine automatically does it for you. But then there's a manual, you know, the old school stick shift, the four and the floor, you know, now um, you can shift right on your steering column. But it, it takes like, well, what gear do I want to be in? Do I want to be in first? Should I be in second? What's happening with my car? And that's what emotional regulation is for those of us with ADHD. Um, even when we train it, it's not automatic. It's manual, which means we have to be, we have to increase self-awareness and we have to start to cognitively shift. Well, I know that can be a little bit harder than it sounds. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, it definitely can. And what do you think is the hardest step in that? Uh, it really the beginning step of awareness. So, you know, a lot of people will say, hey, when you're having a big emotion, you know, my book writes about, a lot about big emotions. Well, if you have a big emotion, just stop it. It's like, well, no, once that, once that train has left the station, that's too late for that. We need to understand how to recover and what to do with the big emotion. Um, ADHD folks tend to go from zero to 10 um, in their emotion, whereas neurotypicals tend to just kind of hover around four, five, and six emotionally. Uh, we, we either have like an on or off switch, either we're fully big emotion or we have zero emotion, apathy. And so we need to learn what to do that we do have big emotions and learn what to do when we have them. The goal isn't to totally get rid of our emotions. The goal is to manage them. That's true. I mean, and when you think about it that way, oh, okay. I can do that, you know, but if you set these unrealistic goals that you're going to get rid of them and then you find that you can't, then you're creating that self-defeating process. Exactly. Oh, and, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So the people, there's different things out there on the market. There's all kinds of tools. There's all kinds of suggestions on what you can use to motivate yourself, to get yourself going. Are there definitely things that you would say, bad tools, stay away from? Oh, well, 
no, tools are just tools. And so, you know, a wrench might be useful for me, but not for every job. And a screwdriver might be useful for some jobs. So, you know, there is not one way to solve the problem. And so I wouldn't say that there's really bad tools out there. Um, but I would say that ADHD folks have some bad habits of trying to motivate themselves. And if you don't mind, I'd love to just share those quickly with you That'd guys. That'd be great. Um, Please do. So sometimes ADHD folks, and, and these are actual tools that ADHD folks kind of learn intuitively on how to like shake up their emotional brain to get stuff done, but they're bad tools. And so, it, and the funny thing is they're not out there. They're already inside the person. So uh, one of them is anxiety. I already kind of touched on that. Like if we have something, we'll kind of cook up a whole big, bunch of anxiety to get us going to do it. Um, avoidance is actually a bad tool that ADHD folks use. Um, I think it's Russell Barkley who calls it, or maybe Russ Ramsey who calls it procrastivity. And in other words, I really don't want to do this one sub thing that I have to do. So I'm going to go clean my sock drawer instead. And so we we're avoiding what really needs to be done by doing something else instead. Um, and that's, that's like we're motivating ourselves to do the other. And that's what avoidance is. Uh, then there's procrastination. That's a motivational tool that we use to motivate ourselves. And guys, those of you with ADHD out there listening, I'm not going to shame you for using it. I'm just saying I think you can learn better tools than this one because procrastinity, uh, procrastination actually works some of the time, but you really can't trust it to work enough. And it's exhausting to use. Uh, I work with students who will pull an all-nighter, and yeah, they procrastinated. They wrote a whole paper that should have been written over a semester in one night. But what's the cost, right? They missed a whole night of sleep. Night of sleep. Their sleep schedule screwed up. They're emotionally exhausted. Uh, the other two uh, or other three bad habits are anger. Sometimes some of us motivate ourselves uh, out of spite or anger to get stuff done. Uh, I, I just worked with a husband. Um, who he was really irritated at his wife. His wife wanted some weeding done, kept asking him, asking him. He picked a fight with his wife and then went to do the weeding out of spite. Well, he concocted this, this anger to motivate him to do it. And you see where all these go wrong, right, Lee? I mean, but oh, yeah. that's what ADC people will do. Um, and the last two are really sad. Um, they're shaming yourself. And self-loathing. And I cannot tell you enough how I work with, most people I work with already have a serious shame problem. And it means their ADHD brain is trying to say, see, you failed. You're going to fail again unless you can change. And really, you stink and you need to do better. Well, and the problem with shame is shame's got that best friend. And, you know, blame, shame (laughs) Uh and blame, they hang together. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the two evil twins. Yeah. So 
Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because um, I'm going to make a sweeping generality here, but there's a pattern I see in my practice. I see a lot of men do the blame. Well, if it wasn't for this person, I would have done this. And I see a lot of shame in the women. Like, I screw this up. And so it's, a, it's the blame is the outward and the shame is the inward, but they're both the same thing. And they're both a way of trying to motivate ourselves to do better. And, and both uh, the males and the females in my center just feel like crap all the time. Yeah. And, and what happens is uh, you talked about depression. Finally, we get to the point where we're just hating ourselves all the time. I'm just a constant screw up and I'm exhausted. And guess what that looks like? That looks a lot like depression. It's because we're just emotionally exhausted and we really can't stand ourselves. Well, and that, you know, that only gets worse. So for yeah. our for our listeners that all of a sudden are like, yeah, I actually I hated myself yesterday um, and I kind of yeah. hate myself still today. What do you say to them? Your brain's not broken, but you do need to figure out how it works and get serious about how it works and working with your brain instead of against it. And you know, that's you know, a good point. Brene that Brown. You made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Brene Brown, I talked about her like she's a friend. You know, I don't know her. Wish I did. But, um, you know, she has a lot to say about vulnerability and being kind to yourself and self-compassion. And I talk to my clients a lot about learning to be compassionate with your ADHD self and learning to be kind and not, not talking to your ADHD self with such horrible words. Well, I think that we all have, you know, we all have self-defeating thoughts um, mm-hmm. but we all get that, you know, we, we get the shoulds, you should do that. You really should. But if you can learn, like I used to have the shoulds and I learned how to reframe that. I turned those shoulds yeah. into coulds. Okay. Well, yeah. I could do that. Well, if I did that, what would that look like? Well, this would happen. Well, I like that. This would happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would happen. Okay, two out of three, I'll do it. So I think that yeah. depression, anxiety, everybody has those self-defeating thoughts. And yeah. I think that the ADHD folks have it in a different way because, you know, I, I came, I reframed it using that prefrontal cortex. Okay, what else could you do besides should? Well, you could. So, you know, we've got in the last five minutes we've got left of the show. I'd like for us to really think about what are the takeaways? Number one, buy the book and the oh. book. I, well, because I think that there's so much. And if you're part of that population, you need to hear it more than two or three times. And just, you know, if, sure. just to have that book sitting on your nightstand, your brain's not broken. I would consider that to be positive affirmation. You know, I'd look over there every morning. I'd say, see, my brain's not broken. So, so what else can we leave them with? Uh, so ADHD really is a serious thing. 
And even though our society kind of makes fun of it, it is a very serious, um, I don't want, I don't like calling it a disability. Um, it's a very serious cognitive difference when you're trying to function in the modern world. Now, if you put us all in the wilderness to survive, we'll, we'll probably do some pretty cool things. We're pretty inventive. But the modern society, the way it is, we're working really hard. And so I really would love for your listeners, if they have ADHD, take it seriously. Um, for those people who are like, well, I was diagnosed when I was younger. I probably outgrew it. You know, I think only 5% of us truly outgrow it. Um, and even that research is changing rapidly. So uh, once you have it, you pretty much do have the ADHD logic. It just means it might not be getting interfering with your life. So if it is interfering with your life, if you are struggling, um, kind of with being down on yourself all the time, not the time to get serious about taking care of it. Is it ever too late? Oh, it's not. I One of my favorite clients was 80 years old when she started coaching. And That's great. boy, was she a spitfire. And she just kept saying, well, I've got to learn how to just tame this ADHD brain of mine. And she had things she wanted to do. So um, it's never too late. Uh, ADHD people, uh, we our brains age differently, meaning like we think of ourselves differently as we age. Um, we kind of have a Peter Pan, like we're always kind of young in our minds. And I think that's one of the great tendencies that we have. So it's never too late for us. I think that's just a very important point for people to hear because, you know, just because sometimes you can live with things for just so long and then it's just I'm done. I am done. I cannot I can't keep doing this. And so knowing that, hey, you can create change, whether you're six or 60, I find that to be very comforting. Yeah, it really is. And. Everyone can keep growing and changing no matter how old you are. So to the spouses who are married to an ADHD person, well, God bless you. I know that we're a handful, um, but maybe, you know, find ways where both of you guys can, can survive and thrive together. Well, that's, that's really appreciate, appreciated because just recognizing that this pressure that the other spouse has you know because sometimes I think there's some resentment you know oh you just all you think about is you what about me so you've given us great great advice where if people want to get the book where can they get it anywhere books are sold great good old Amazon yeah one of my favorites Uh, even you know Barnes and Noble uh, a lot of brick and mortar places are carrying it so, yes, thank you. Oh, you're you're very welcome. And thank you. You've been such a, a great guest. And you just shared so much practical information that I think probably every one of our listeners is going to walk away and think, oh, I've got to tell so-and-so about this. Or, oh, I've got to listen to that again. Tamara, I can't thank you enough for being with me today. I can't wait for that next book. On behalf of 
Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.